0: Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church, or download our free Calvary Church app. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. And so uh, today we're going to be in the book of Esther. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 2. Um, now, who here's read the book of Esther? Show of hands if you've read that through the book. Okay, cool. Uh, if you have read it or you haven't read it, your homework today, either way, is to go home and read the book of Esther this afternoon, this evening, before you go to bed, something like that. It'll take you maybe 15 minutes to do the whole thing. It's a really short little book. Um, but the book of Esther is amazing because it has the fingerprints of God all over it, and yet it doesn't mention God once. God's name isn't mentioned, prayer isn't mentioned. In fact, you could take Esther and say, this doesn't have anything to do with spiritual things. Why is this even in the Bible? And yet God's hand is all over the book of Esther. In fact, I would say maybe even more so than many other books throughout the Bible that mention God, the book of Esther shows the way that God works behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes through his people in miraculous and powerful ways. I want to give you just a little bit of an overview of the book of Esther because we're not going to actually dig too much into the text of Esther today. I have uh, not really so much of an expositional message for you as a little insight that God gave me through this one little you know nugget that stuck out in the middle of the book. But the story of Esther, uh, just for context, is the, the Israelites have been exiled in Babylon, which is now Persia. Uh, King Xerxes I, or King Ahasuerus, as he's also called in the scripture, is ruling over the empire of Persia. Now, Persia from that day stretched from India all the way to Greece and then south to Ethiopia. It was a massive empire. And King Xerxes got really frustrated with his wife uh, in this one party situation that they were having going on. And so he banished her from his presence, essentially deposed her as queen. And so they had to hold a, a a contest throughout the entire empire to name the next queen of Persia. And so it was essentially kind of a Miss Persian Empire contest, if you will. The winner would become the next queen of Persia. And so this was held, and through um, the the contest, all of these women were brought in, and Esther, this Jewish girl, uh, was chosen as the next queen of Persia. And Esther and her cousin Mordecai um, are the kind of the main Uh, characters that we read about in this historical account, and we follow along with them as God uses these two unlikely, unsuspecting people to save an entire nation. Because see, as you get into Esther chapter three, which we're not gonna look at today, there's a man named Haman that comes onto the scene. And Haman is a descendant of the enemy of the Jews, and he takes issue with Mordecai and ultimately decides that he wants to wipe out the entire nation of Israel. And so he launches this plan. He tricks the king into signing this decree, and it goes into effect, and the king couldn't undo a decree that he had signed. It was part of the law of the Persians. And so uh, Esther and Mordecai step in, and God uses them in a powerful way to rescue his people. It's a a powerful story of God's power and redemption and God's hand working in the lives of people. I highly encourage you to read through the whole thing later today. But really, the the, the story of Esther, even though it doesn't mention God, is a story of how God is sovereign, of how he's in control, how he's ever-present and constantly working through every situation to accomplish his purposes for his kingdom and his people, even when, and maybe even especially when, we don't see how it's working out. And the cool thing as you go through this book is the, 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 the way that God uses ordinary people like you and me to accomplish great things. And there's a line that I'm sure you've heard from Esther, even if you haven't read through the book of Esther. Uh, It's right in the middle of the book as Haman has launched this plan and Mordecai, Esther's cousin, comes to her and is trying to encourage her to go in and say something to the king. And he says, who knows, perhaps you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this, right? You've probably heard that before. And I really believe that is true, not only in Esther, but in your life, and in my life is that God has placed you where you are and made you who you are and set you in your family, in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, intentionally, on purpose, strategically for such a time as this. You're not on accident and nothing that you go through is on accident. You've been brought to where you are and made who you are and placed in the circumstances you find yourself in on purpose for such a time as this. Now, I think most of us know that on some level. If you're a follower of Jesus, you you know that there's a purpose behind your existence. You know that God has a plan for your life. But sometimes, if we're honest, it can just feel like you're floating through life, right? Sometimes you might think, well, I, I know that God has a plan, but why am I not seeing it actually happen in my life? Why doesn't it feel like it. Why do I find myself in the difficult season that I've been in? Why am I going through this hardship? Why am I going through this trial? Why am I going through this health issue? Why am I unhappy in my marriage? Why am I upset about the state of the world or the economy? Why is our country going the way that it is? Why, is all, why are all these things going out of control? I mean, if God is really in control, why does everything feel out of control? You ever feel like that? It's okay to admit that, I feel like that at times. There are moments in my life where I'm like, man, everything seems like it's just spinning totally out of control. God, if you're moving, why am I not seeing it? Well, I believe that as we dig into the word today, we're gonna see how God moves, even in small in seemingly insignificant circumstances to bring about his purposes for your good and for his glory. And so as we get into the word, I just want to come before the Lord in a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you, and we are so grateful for your goodness and your love that we sing about. Lord, that you are so good and so loving. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would reveal your goodness to us, that you would reveal your power and your might and your strength. Would you speak through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, Amen. Look with me in Esther chapter 2, verse 19. And this is picking up after Esther has already been made the the queen of Persia. Um, Now they've kind of settled into this role. And Mordecai, her cousin, is a city official, as we'll see here in a second. It says in Esther 2, verse 19, When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. And so just to note here, Mordecai is sitting in the king's gate. Now there's a significance to that. Sitting in the king's gate meant that he was a city official of some sort. In this day, if you had an issue or a dispute or a legal dispute with somebody, you would take them and you would go into the gate of the city And then the city officials would act as judges or magistrates and decide on these issues. And so in this circumstance, Mordecai is sitting there judging the issues that people are bringing up to him. And then in verse 21, it says, in those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king." That's an important part right there, that it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So here's what's going on. There are these two guys that are servants of the king. They're doorkeepers. And for some reason, they were angry with him. We don't exactly know what it was, but we do know that this guy was not a nice guy. King Xerxes was a madman. He literally commanded that the sea be beaten and whipped with chains because it wasn't listening to him. Okay, the ocean. That's where this guy had lost it. He just had way too much power. His empire was way too big, and he thought he was all that. And so he commands the sea to be beaten. And so these guys are, you know, they're just frustrated with him. For some reason, they're trying to plot his assassination. Now, they didn't succeed, but somebody did later. He was actually later assassinated by some of his servants. So this plot to assassinate the king is found out and shared with Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin, kind of her adopted father. And Mordecai tells Esther about it and tells her to tell the king which she does. And then it's found out, and they put these two men to death, and they write it down in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So here's the thing, though. We see this little interjection into the bigger picture story of Esther, and my first thought when I was reading through this is like, what does this have to do with the story of Esther at all? I mean, it's kind of just this little side rabbit trail in the middle of the book that doesn't have anything to do with the Jews being in danger, which will happen in the next chapter. It doesn't have anything to do with Esther saving her people which we'll see in a couple chapters. What's the point? Why is this even here? It seems so small and insignificant to the overall story. Why was this even included? Well, here's why. This small interjection into the larger story of Esther sets the stage for the way that God is going to save his people in the end. What it's doing is it's showing how God works behind the scenes, in advance even, to deliver his people. See the danger that was coming to the Israelites wasn't even present yet. Haman, who we meet in the next chapter, hadn't even concocted the plan to say to kill the Jews yet, and God is already putting pieces in place to rescue them. See God plans to deliver before the enemy ever even plans to destroy. It's a powerful example of how God ultimately works in our lives, not only in the day-to-day stuff, but in your salvation as well. See, it tells us in Revelation that Jesus Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, he didn't actually die at the foundation of the world, right? But God planned before anything was created that he would choose to die on that cross before sin even existed. He chose to die on that cross for you and for me, And so in this instance, God gives Mordecai the opportunity to save the king's life, which is written down in this book. And then later in the story, we find the king bored and lonely and unable to sleep, and he's reading through this book and finds this written and comes back and says, wait a second, we never did anything for this Mordecai guy. Ultimately setting the stage for God to deliver his people through Esther and Mordecai. See, God knew that his people would need to be saved even before it happened. And so he begins to set things in motion to deliver them from the coming destruction. That plot that would be hatched by Haman, God knew it was going to happen. And so before it even happened, he already put the pieces in place to deliver his people. And he did it through these small, seemingly insignificant circumstances. Esther getting chosen to be the king's wife. Mordecai hearing about this plot to kill the king. This being written down in this book small little details that add up to a big picture deliverance from the destruction that was coming. And see, in the same way, God is working in all of the details of your life, all of the small things, all of the seemingly insignificant things, all of the long, drab, boring days that you go through, God sees and is working in all of it for your good and for his glory. Every circumstance that you go through, is being worked together by God for your good. And you might be in a situation right now where you're just wondering what God is doing. You're wondering where he's going, why you're not seeing answers to that prayer that you keep praying, why it feels like you're stuck and you're not seeing the growth that you'd like to, or why you feel like you're in that dead-end job or, or, or your marriage is on the rocks or whatever it might be. And here's what I think that you really need to know today is that God, is always working. He's always working in your life. He's never not working. In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 5, verse 17. He says, my father is always working and so am I. He never has his hand off of you just kind of letting things happen. No, he is working actively in your life. Even right now, he's working around your life and directing your steps and leading you in ways you could never imagine to bring about his purposes in your life. You see, Esther and Mordecai had no idea that they would be used by God to save their people. They're just kind of trying to do their life. It's like they're, they're just trying to walk through life, trying to not get in trouble, trying to do the right thing and make sure that the assassination plot gets found out. They're just doing the right thing. Meanwhile, God is preparing them for what he's going to do. And see, I think so often in life, we face difficulties or we face attack in life or we see something happen and it's like man the enemy's really coming after me right now i don't know what's going to happen i don't know how i'm going to get through this i don't know how you know any of this is going to work out and we stress out and we freak out and we worry out worry about it but the reality is that god is in control and even the things that the enemy is intending for your destruction god is intending for your good you know, there's a quote from Michael Wells that says this. He says, do you realize, child of God, all that Satan has planned for your destruction, God has planned for your good. So the best laid plans of the enemy to destroy your life, God takes even those and doesn't just circumvent them, he actually repurposes them to bring good in your life. This is how big our God is. He is so big and so powerful, we can't even comprehend how he's moving and how he's working. Even today, even right now, even this minute as you're sitting here. You know, I think about my life. Honestly, I never wanted to be a pastor and it wasn't even just like, yeah, I don't wanna be a pastor. It was like, if there was a list of things that I didn't want to do, being a pastor was like up at the top of them, okay? (laughs) I didn't wanna be a pastor. I wanted to be serving the Lord in ministry. I was a musician, so I wanted to play guitar. I played in this Christian rock band. There was all these things that I wanted to do, but if I didn't wanna do one thing, it was be a pastor. And yet God kept sticking me in these positions where I had to learn pastoral ministry. He put me in charge of leading a middle school youth group. He put me in charge of leading a Bible study. And many of these things I was doing reluctantly. It's like, I don't really wanna do this. I don't wanna do, but it's, it's right there. Okay, I guess I'll do it, Lord. I guess I'll do it. Organizing outreaches and all these different things. And I remember one day, I finally, I got my dream job, which was being a worship leader at a church. It's at the church actually that I'm at now. But years ago, uh, we went and planted a church after that. a long, long story, but going back, I got this dream job. I was leading worship at this church and that was going on for about a year and I was just so excited and blessed to be doing that. And then the pastor of the church came and said, hey, you're not gonna be a worship leader anymore. You're gonna be a pastor. And I was like, I don't wanna be a pastor. (laughs) That's not what I wanna do. (laughs) Well, if you want a job, that's what you're gonna do. Okay. (laughs) And so I said yes to the Lord and stepped into that, all the while realizing that he'd been preparing me for that all along the entire way. Whenever I think about this, it reminds me of the Karate Kid. Now, I'm not talking about, like, the Jaden Smith Karate Kid, and I'm not talking about Cobra Kai, all that stuff on Netflix. I'm talking about the real 1980s Karate Kid. Anybody, you know what I'm talking about? Daniels, yes, yeah, totally, the real Karate Kid. Daniel-san and Mr. Miyagi, and the real Karate Kid, all right? So what happened in the Karate Kid? Daniel wants to learn karate. And so he goes to Mr. Miyagi's house and he's like, I want to learn karate. And what does Mr. Miyagi tell him to do? Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. And Daniel is sitting there and he's waxing all Mr. Miyagi's classic cars and getting them all shined and pretty and good. And he finally gets done. He's like, okay, I'm done. I'm ready to learn Karate, and what does Mr. Miyagi do? He says, paint the fence. Up, down, up, down, up, down. And Daniel gets so frustrated. He's like, I didn't come here to do your chores. <laughs> That's not why I'm here. I came to learn karate. Why are you having me doing all this stuff? What's going on? And then Mr. Miyagi does something in that moment when he says, Daniel, wax on, wax off. And he starts punching at him. And Daniel does the wax on, wax off and realizes that the entire time Mr. Miyagi was training him in a way that he didn't even understand to be ready for the moment when the attack would come. And see, I think God is working in the same way in your life and in my life. We go through situations and we feel like, I don't understand this. Why do you have me in this job? Why do you have me in this relationship? Why do you have me in this neighborhood? Why do you have me going through this, God? I don't understand what you're doing. I'm sitting here painting a fence and I want to learn karate. Why do you have me painting a fence? All the while, God is preparing you, working on you, putting you through the tests and the trials to purify your faith, to stretch your boundaries, and to build your trust in him. See, you don't face anything in this life on accident. There is nothing that enters your life without first passing through the hands of God. And if it's passed through his hands first, you can trust that he is working it for your good. I don't care how scary, how hard, how overwhelming that situation is. If God has allowed it, he will cause it to bring good in your life, even if the circumstance itself is bad. Even if the the hardship that you're going through is tragic and destructive, God repurposes it for good. You know, there's a quote that I heard a few weeks ago that really struck me, and he says this. He says, we like to talk about having the faith to be healed, but what about having the faith to be sick? And you know, I believe that God heals. In fact, I'm a testimony of God healing. When I was born, I had a hole in my lung. I shouldn't have survived. God miraculously healed me through answered prayer from my parents and the church that they were a part of. God worked miraculously in my life, but sometimes God doesn't heal. And what about having the faith to walk through the sickness, trusting that God is still working and moving in the midst of it? What about trusting God whatever may come, knowing that He is sovereign that he's in control. And even when we feel out of control and like things are just going crazy, God isn't scared. God isn't confused. God isn't overwhelmed. He has a plan and we can have faith. And we can trust that God is good even when things are not good. Guys, it's so important that we don't forget how big our God is. I think sometimes when we feel like things are out of control, we think like God doesn't have control, right? Like we feel out of control, so God must feel out of control. Do you think God is up there stressing about your situation? I don't think so. I don't think that's how he's handling it right now. You know, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 says this, who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale. See, our God is so big and so powerful and so mighty. He has it under control. He's holding the whole universe together. I'm a little bit of a nerd. I'll just let you know. And I'm going to let you in on my brain here just for a minute. So you can kind of like, as you process this, you can say, okay, he said he's a nerd. I get it now. Okay. But here's the deal. I, I'm like kind of geek out on some of like space and you know, astronomy and looking at things in outer space and just kind of the bigness of the universe that, that exists. And so I, I was looking like, to try to compare like the scale of the universe to us, for example, right? Because I think we tend to put God in this bubble like he's a human and he's kind of hanging out with us. And of course, Jesus took on flesh, right? But the reality is God is so much bigger than we can even comprehend. And so I'm trying to like, put this scale of the universe together. And I looked online and I was Google searching and I found this tool that's really cool that you can actually Zoom in and out and scale back and forth and see the size of the universe in comparison to yourself. And so I I couldn't find a way to share it with you that was very good other than like doing a screen grab video of me playing around with it online. So that's kind of what this is. But I want to share this video with you guys just to get a, a feel of how big the universe is that God currently is holding together. So would you look at this video with me? You guys can go ahead and play that for me. Thank you. Okay. So you can see. There's like a meter, basketball. That person, just imagine that person is you. Now, first thing to note, did you know that there is such a thing as a giant earthworm that is nine feet long? It lives in Australia. One more reason to never go to Australia. Okay, so you can see, now you're starting to look kind of small next to the saguaro cactus, you know, the blue whale. You're kind of zooming out there a little bit, right? You got the redwood trees, the Eiffel Tower, the Titanic. You and I are kind of a little tiny dot at this point. Zooming out a little further, you can see there's Half Dome and Angel Falls, and we're starting to look at some comets and some asteroids, you know, the size of these things. There's a neutron star, which is a very small star. There's Rhode Island. You can start to see West Virginia, California, Texas. This is just the scale of these things. We're starting to see some moons now, different moons. There's the Earth and the moon, our moon. Scaling out, there's a Minecraft world, just in case you're wondering, (laughs) right? Jupiter, these different stars, there's the sun. That's our sun right there. That's the size of that compared to the earth. But now look at these other stars, our sun compared to these other stars. Now our sun is a dot in comparison to some of these other stars that we're looking at. And it just keeps going and going and going and going as you look at the size of these massive stars that exist in the universe, and we're starting to look at some of the nebulas that you can see in space, and we'll look at some of these a little bit more later, but these nebulas of like gas and dust that you can actually visibly see in space. And then we're not even at galaxies yet. That's what I want you to notice. Like we're, like we're so far zoomed out and we're not even looking at a galaxy yet, okay? And so all of these nebulas are zooming out, zooming out. Think about how small you are at this point in comparison to all of this. And then, now we're looking at dwarf galaxies. These are the smallest galaxies, okay? And then there's the Sombrero Galaxy in the Milky Way, which is where our sun is located. Again, even that is zooming out now. It's becoming a tiny little speck on the big picture, the grand scheme of the universe. You can start to see we're looking at clusters of galaxies and clusters of stars and there's a supercluster. and everything, I mean, this is just, massive scale. Look at this for a second. It's just massive. And it keeps going until we have what we call the observable universe. You can leave that up just for a second. Now the observable universe, observable universe. This isn't how big the universe is. This is what we can see of the universe that exists right now. Now hold your thumb and your forefinger up and just kind of like put that in between your thumb and forefinger right now, okay? That is what we just read in Isaiah 40 That's like God's view of the universe. He measures it off between his thumb and his forefinger. The universe is like nothing to God. It's like a small, it's kind of like, it's like the size of a softball, right? I mean, of course, God is spirit, he's not physical, so this isn't like literally holding it, but the the picture is, to God, the universe is like the size of a softball. He's like, where did I leave the universe? I don't know, it must have rolled under the couch over there or something. To him, it's like nothing. And yet, compared to you and to me, it's massive. I, uh, again, kind of geeked out a little bit the last couple weeks because they, they came out with the first images from the new James Webb Space Telescope. I don't know if you know about this. You can go look at this on NASA, the NASA website, and look at some of these pictures. But I just wanted to share a few of these images with you of actual photos that they captured of deep space from the James Webb Space Telescope. Here's this first one. This is what's called the Carina Nebula. Now, that's not graphics. That's not CGI. This is something that God created, right, that you can actually observe in space with a space I mean, look at that. That's just crazy. It's like Star Trek or something, right? Show that next one for me. This one's called the Southern Ring Nebula. The one on the left is infrared light. The one on the right is more like your observable, um, what you would see with your eyes. This next one, this next one's my favorite one. Now this one, look at that for a second. Now, if you grew up in the 80s, this is like a 1980s Olin Mills photo background. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like if you got a school photo in the 80s, that was your background right there. (laughs) But, This isn't fake. This isn't actually that. This is a photo of not stars, but thousands of galaxies. Okay. Think about that for a second. Each of those dots that you see on that is a galaxy, not a star. And each galaxy has somewhere around a hundred billion stars in it. Okay. So each of those dots is like a hundred billion stars. And that galaxy is just a tiny little dot, and there's thousands of galaxies there. Now, here's the thing when I saw this photo that absolutely blew my mind, is that that isn't like some big chunk of sky that you can look up and be like, oh yeah, there's those thousands of galaxies. If you were to look for this with your naked eye from here on the earth, it would be like holding a grain of sand at arm's length and holding it up. Now, everybody do that with me. Hold your arm up like this, like you're holding a grain of sand. Look up at the sky. That tiny little dot that would be a grain of sand held at arm's length is that, holding thousands of galaxies, which each hold hundreds of billions of stars. One tiny dot. And our God holds that together. He measured that by the scale of his thumb, and forefinger for the entire observable universe. I mean, one little dot that holds thousands of galaxies that holds hundreds of billions of stars, you multiply that by like five billion to cover the entire sphere around the earth, what you would see. That is the size of just the universe that God measures between his thumb and his forefinger. Guys, our God is big. He created, sustains, and holds all of that together. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 17 says this, he existed, this is speaking of Jesus, before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Right now, everything that we see exists, not because he created it, but because he's actively holding it together. All that he would need to do to end everything is let go. And he's sustaining it and holding it together even now. I have one more photo I want to show you. You pull that one up for me. This photo is not a planet, it's not a galaxy, it's not an outer space actually. This is much, much, much closer to home. This is a photo of the human eye. And I kind of like had a weird like brain check moment when I'm looking at this, because I was like, I'm looking out of my eye, looking at the eye, like just couldn't process for a second. Like, what is going on here? But that's your eye. Look at all of the intricacies of your eye and the pupil and how it contracts and expands to let in just the right amount of light to be received by the back of your eye, to be processed by your brain, interpreted as an image, and ultimately to understand what you're looking at. It's miraculous. It's designed. It's perfectly put together. It's not an accident. The same God who holds the universe together is holding you together literally your physical body and he wants to hold you together spiritually and emotionally as well this is who we're talking about God is in control and the amazing thing is not just that God is in control and that he created all of that and he sustains all of that and he's holding it all together but God who is holding all of that together loves you as an individual person. Think back to that video that we watched and the little stick figure at the beginning next to the giant earthworm. <laughs> that stick figure representing you, think about how small you are in comparison with the universe. And yet, the God who holds it all together loves you. The God who is in control loves you. And even being in control, he chose intentionally, on purpose, chose to die on a cross for you. See, Jesus didn't die on accident. Jesus wasn't forced onto that cross. There is no number of people that could force the God who created that onto a cross. He willingly, intentionally hung on that cross and died for you and for me. Why? Because he loves you. God who speaks stars into existence using his words and holds it all together and placed those thousands of galaxies and hundreds of billions of stars and that one tiny dot held at arm's length, humbled himself. The Almighty became nothing for you. He was born as a poor, humble child and lived a humble life and died a criminal's death for you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8 says this, speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, if God, this is like an equation, right? So like A plus B equals C. If God who measures off that great big universe that we saw by the the span, the thumb to forefinger, if God who does that loves you, What do you have to fear? What do you have to worry about? What do you have to stress about? If God who measures the universe like this would willingly die on a cross for you, what else would he possibly withhold from you? And whatever he's allowed into your life, you can trust that he's going to make it good. He's moving through every circumstance of your life, balancing his sovereignty with your free will and the free will of other people. I mean, he is so big and so powerful that he can work it all out for good, even the hard and the bad stuff. See, God is for you. And just as he worked in this situation and set it up perfectly for Mordecai to hear of this plot and then his name to be written in the book so that later when the threat came, he could unleash that and open it up and use Mordecai and Esther to save his people. He is working in the details of your life today. He has a plan and a hope laid out for you even through the hardship. He doesn't usually spare us from the hardship. He pulls us through it and makes it good as we get to the other side. And so you, in response... Can trust him. That's our proper response. That if God can hold all that together and he loves me so much he would die for me, then I can trust him. Psalm 91 verse 2 says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In him I will trust. He's the place of refuge. He's a fortress that you can run into and be safe. I think it's totally the Lord that God had us read Psalm 91 at the beginning of service today. I didn't share that with him. I didn't pick that out. God set that up. And the very first verse of Psalm 91, we just read verse 2, but back in verse 1, it says this, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I love this because this picture is God covering us and us resting in his shadow, that everything that's coming our way has to pass by him first. It's kind of like when you go to lunch and you're sitting outside and you're know, like you sitting across from somebody and the sun's blinding your eyes, but if you position your head just right, their head blocks and makes a shadow so you're not blinded by the sun. You ever have that happen? Or is that just me? I'm the only one who really does that, right? No, I remember it's like there's sometimes I'll be sitting there at lunch and I'm like, kind of like sitting like this and the person looks at me like, are you okay? like, oh yeah, I'm just getting, like you're blocking the sun, so don't move. Don't move to the left. Don't move to the right. You're just blocking the sun perfectly. But see, this is what God does. As we rest in his shadow, he covers us and everything that comes into our life at that point passes through his hands and he works it for good in our lives so that even when the world feels like it's on fire, we can trust and we can rest and we can know that our God is in control, that he has a plan, and we don't have to worry. I mean, that thing that you're thinking about that stresses you out so bad, do you think God's worried about that? Do you think God's stressed? Like sometimes I just have to remind myself and give this myself visually, like to try to picture Jesus walking back and forth, pacing like, I don't know what I'm gonna do with that Nate guy. He just blew it, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know how I'm gonna work this out. Do you think Jesus is actually doing that? No, of course not. He's holding the universe together. He's not stressed about your situation or your finances or your job or your relationships. He's not worried about it at all because he has a plan. And I'll take it a step further. He's not worried about where our country's going. He's not worried about what's happening with the economy. He's not worried about any of it because he is in control. He is sovereign and he will work things out according to his plan so we can trust in him and in his goodness. I'd like to close us out today with just reading the word of God over you. I'm gonna read Isaiah chapter 40 from the New Living Translation. I'm not gonna have it on the screen and I'd actually encourage you not to open up your Bible at this point. That's kind of rare that I would say don't open your Bible, but I just want you just to receive the word of the Lord poured over you. You can close your eyes even if you want. That's how I would spend this moment, is closing my eyes and just listening to the word of the Lord spoken over me. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 10. And you've heard some of this before, but I think it's important to hear it in context, about the bigness and the greatness and the grandness of our God. Isaiah 40, verse 10. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm, See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give Him advice or to teach Him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does He need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach Him what is right or show Him the path of justice? No, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They're nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. All the wood in Lebanon's forests and all Lebanon's animals would not be enough to make a burnt offering worthy of our God. The nations of the world are worth nothing to him. In his eyes, they count for less than nothing, mere emptiness and froth. To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold, overlaid with gold and decorated with silver chains? Or if people are too poor for that, they might at least choose wood that won't decay and a skilled craftsman to carve an image that won't fall down. Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God, the words he gave before the world began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. He judges the great people of the world and brings them all to nothing. They hardly get started, barely taking root. When he blows on them and they wither, the wind carries them off like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. O Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? O Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. Lord Jesus, we come before you today humbled at how small we are in comparison with you. Lord, we are nothing. We're less than nothing in comparison with you. Lord, when we look at the scale of what you've created that simply speaks to your glory, Lord, I for one am reminded that all the things that I feel like are so big All the difficulties, all the challenges, all the worries, all the stresses, all of those things that feel so massive in my life are so small, and yet you're working in all of them. Lord, we praise you for your grandeur and your bigness, Lord, but also that you, the God who created and sustains the universe, that you love me, that you love each one of us enough to die on the cross so that we could experience your love and relationship with you and have eternal life with you. Lord, forgive us for making you small in our minds. Forgive us for robbing you of your power in our minds and our hearts, for treating you as if you're simply one of us. Lord, I'm thankful that you did become one of us But you're not just one of us, you are the almighty, the all-powerful, the one in charge, the one in control. And so, Lord, we come before you today and we confess that you are God, that you are worthy of our praise, that you're worthy of our trust. And so, Lord, we lay our worries at your feet, we lay our concerns and our stresses and our fears at your feet. And we choose to trust you, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we don't know how you're working, even when it doesn't seem like you're working in the situation, Lord, we choose to trust that you are always at work, just like you were in Esther. You're working in our lives. So Lord, help us to choose to trust, to walk in trust with you. And Lord, I know that as we have a gathering of this size, as there's people here in the house with us, as there's people listening on the radio or online, that there's probably someone here who's never put their faith in you, Lord. They've probably never received your forgiveness for their sins and known that they have a God who loves them and has good intentions towards them. Lord, if there's anyone like that with us right now, would you just stir their hearts by your Holy Spirit right now? Would you reveal your incredible love for them? And if that's you today, I want you to know that God loves you. Maybe you're here because somebody invited you in, or maybe you flipped the radio station, or maybe you just felt a sudden urge to go to church and you don't really know why, or maybe you've even been going to church for a long time and you've still yet to surrender your life to Christ. I just want to tell you today that God loves you. The same God who created and holds the universe together died for you on the cross to forgive you for your sins. And he does forgive you of your sins if you put your trust in him. He's holding it all together and he wants to hold you together. The question is whether you will put your trust in him. Will you say yes to Jesus? And so if you're here today and you'd like to say yes to Jesus, you'd like to put your faith in Jesus, receive forgiveness for your sins, to know that you have eternal life waiting for you in heaven, To know that you belong to him and you're loved by him and held by him. If that's you, I'd like to lead you in a moment of putting your trust in Jesus right now. You can simply say this simple prayer. It's not a prayer that saves you. It's your faith put in him, but this helps you have a moment that you can look back on and say, yes, that's when I put my trust in Jesus. Would you just repeat this simple prayer after me? Say, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you that you, the almighty God, would die for me. I know I don't deserve it. And yet you give it. I want to follow you now. So please forgive me for my sin and make me a new creation. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.